my name is Corey. This is my wife, Krisha. For those of you who don't know us, uh, I am on staff here. You will hear more from me tonight at the family meeting for those of you who will be here for that. Uh, so some of you have probably heard that we had a bit of a medical scare uh, a couple weeks ago now, and so we wanted to just give everybody an update on uh, what happened there. So uh, she had some heart rate issues, and so we had gone to a cardiologist, and these had been kind of ongoing. Um, and so they did an echo scan. Uh, and then the next morning, we woke up to about 20 missed phone calls and mixed, missed text messages. And I say we because they were even calling my phone because I'm her emergency contact. Um, so we got a hold of the cardiologist, and he said, you need to go to the ER right now. Uh, they're going to transport you to the University of Cincinnati. Be brave. Which is not a phrase you want to hear from a cardiologist. <laughs> Be brave. Uh, so... Yeah, so we were like, uh, okay, do we have time to pack a bag or what do we do here? And so we uh, hopped in the car and drove to the wrong hospital, but we ended up working out. I was a little flustered. <laughs> so <laughs> you can share what, what you were thinking in that car ride. Yeah. So um, what the, the cardiologist did tell me, two, a few other things. He had said, we think that there's a clot in your inferior vena cava is what he was thinking that he had seen. And... Um, I thought, well, okay, that's a large vessel. That's probably not very good. And I know that also provides blood back to my heart and blood to my placenta, and that's probably not very good. So that we knew we knew that much. Um, and I kind of had in this in this like process, I had two two big moments that kind of stuck out to me, and I'll share one of them first. But the first one happened um, in the car on the way to the ER. Um, we were kind of silent <laughs> because we. We did, I think we're just both processing and, and didn't really have much information. And I remember um, breaking the silence and turning to Corey and saying, I would feel very differently about all of this if I wasn't pregnant. And immediately I kind of caught myself and thought, well, actually I said out loud, but I, I guess I shouldn't because I realized that what I meant by that was I trust God with my life, but I don't trust God with my baby's life. And um, I kind of realized in that moment that because I had absolutely no idea what the next few hours were going to look like, I had a decision to make. Um, was he a God that I was really going to trust with lives? With worthy of, was I going to acknowledge that he was worthy of trusting um, for you know, the lives of his creation, all of his creation? Or was I gonna cling to this like idea of control that I thought I had over this life that I had decided was um, somehow not something that I could hand to God? And um, I, I'm I'm sure that like parents in the room were like, "Yeah, you're gonna do that every day." Um, but for me, as a as a new parent, um, that was the first time that I had to take head knowledge of. You know, if somebody had asked me the day before, do you trust God with your, with your child's life? I would have been like, absolutely, I trust God with my child's life. Like, I know he's, I know he's good. I, I, know, um, I know that he's the only person that I should be trusting with any life. But obviously, because that was what had just, like, poured out of my mouth in that moment, that wasn't really something that um, was actually true. And um, so that was a very uh, real moment for me heading to the hospital of, okay, I, I'm, gonna have to, I'm gonna have to not just put my life up on the altar, but I'm gonna have to put Roman's life up on the altar, and I have to be okay with whatever outcome 
comes out of this, trusting that that is actually, like, that's the safest place that he can be, is, is at the throne um, and not in my arms, because I actually have no control over anything that's about to happen. So that was kind of um, a big moment for me. Yeah, so we, we got to the hospital. They gave her some med- medicine right away, steroids and heparin and all that kind of stuff, and then put her on a helicopter to UC, care flight or so I asked if I could go they said no they said only for small children I was like but there is a small child let me go uh so no I had to drive I think I still beat the helicopter there um so yeah hopefully there aren't any cops in the room uh so on the drive I kind of had the moment of like oh there's a chance I could not see her again she could get there and taken into surgery they didn't know what they were gonna have to do when they when they got there so I, I started praying to the Lord um just for healing and got a message out to some house churches and people here. So I think that's how people started to, to kind of find out and staff found out. Uh, you know, and, and I think immediately the thought came to mind of, you know, well, maybe this is just God's will, you know, for you. Um, and then thankfully the spirit brought to mind uh, in Matthew seven, Jesus says, you know, brings kind of this up a little bit. And he's talking about asking God for things, you know, and people are like, well, can I trust him? Um, you know, and Jesus says, you know, you guys are evil and you know how to give, give good gifts. Uh, when you ask your father, and if you being evil know how to good, give, give good gifts, how much more does he know how? Um, and I was confident that I was asking for bread and that he wouldn't give me a stone. Um, I didn't know exactly what that would look like, but I knew that I could trust whatever it was, it wasn't gonna be a stone. Um, and so that was it. I kind of just trusted the Lord and said, all right, here we go. We'll see what, we, see what you do. Um, and then you wanted to share real quick what you were thinking in the helicopter. Yes, the helicopter. So I'm not gonna be naive and say that none of you guys in this room have never been care or have ever been care I'm sure there are people in this room that have been care But I will explain it for you so you can kind of go there with me a little bit. They pretty much straightjacket you into this like board and there's tons of straps because somehow they think you're gonna fall out of the helicopter. <laughs> and then I'm also pregnant, so some of the straps are like just not, not meant for there to be like a lot there. And then they also needed to get access to my belly throughout the helicopter ride so they could measure fetal heart tones and make sure the baby was um, doing okay. So it was just a very like, and they also had me propped up on my left side because that's needed for circulation. Plus they thought I had a circulation problem. So I'm like, kind of like this. So I'm like this, I'm strapped in, I'm very uncomfortable. And it's like a 20 minute um, helicopter ride. And um, I will say that what I'm about to tell you, I'm just gonna share what I was thinking because I'm still processing through a lot of this. And I don't really have like all these wonderful, beautiful things to say. I'm just gonna share like what was happening in my brain and I'm gonna trust that the Lord is gonna use that. Um, Because I tend to be a very anxious person. Like my response to things is not always, look at this mountain and I'm gonna realize that God has brought me through 10,000 other mountains. I I should not be afraid of this, I serve a huge God. That's not always what happens. Most of the time what happens is I just tunnel vision on the mountain and I even sometimes have panic attacks. So I struggle with anxiety. Um, But in God's grace, in God's abundant grace, because I'm very thankful for this, I was not anxious and I cannot, I, I can't 
It was not me because I am an anxious person. I know my own tendency. Um, and so what I was thinking in those moments, um, I had this realization that I had just had a very crazy two hours, about two hours, and I had no idea what the next few hours were going to look like. And they felt like life-changing hours. I, I really thought, I, I remembered thinking, like, I might see the Lord today. Like, I might die. My baby might die. Um, I might walk away alive and my baby might die. Uh, Corey might walk away with neither of us. Like, I have no idea what's going to happen here. And, um, but I had this really huge awareness of the fact that it was two hours in all of eternity. And that in the grand scheme of the kingdom, I had no idea and could not begin to fathom how those two hours fit into the grand scheme of eternity. I couldn't even begin to, to, to try to comprehend how those two hours or the next few hours were gonna play into the kingdom of God and what plans he had for that story, whatever the outcome was. But God had a perspective that I, I just was so aware of how, like not small my situation was, but just how um, sovereign God was over like this huge timeline um, that I was just a, a little dot in. And I couldn't, I couldn't stop thinking about God's goodness and God's faithfulness. That even though I had no idea what the outcome was gonna be, I knew that God was good and that God was faithful. And I remember, um, I remember singing, um, you are good. And I was just singing. They probably thought I was really weird in there, but they probably couldn't hear me because it was very loud. Um, and, you know, propped up in my little awkward <laughs> position and singing great is thy faithfulness. And, I, and then I just started singing every hymn that could, that, or song that came to mind. And... Um, I don't, I don't even know how to explain it. It was, if, if there, it was probably one of the first times, and the Lord has given me peace a lot of times in my life, but it was one of the first times that when it really came to life and death, I had a peace that surpassed all understanding because I was, I was okay. And there was no reason why any person should be okay in that situation except for by the grace of God. Um, and, and because of knowing that he is good and faithful and we can trust the outcome, mm. whatever, we can trust him with the outcome. And it wasn't because I, I felt like, I know I'm gonna walk away from this okay. I didn't feel like that. Um, but I knew that he was good and he was faithful. Amen. Uh, so we both got to the hospital and they did uh, another scan and didn't find anything. And so they did a couple of, they did some ultrasound near the area and didn't find anything. And then they did a more a high resolution echo scan and didn't find anything. And then they scanned her legs and her lungs for clots and didn't find anything. So they said, we're not used to care flighting people and then sending them home. Uh, so we're gonna move you somewhere else for a night to watch you. Or so we stayed there, there the, the cardiovascular surgeon said, we'll keep you overnight. Just because you took a helicopter here this morning. Uh, literally. And uh, so then we had some more tests the next morning and that was it. They said, we can't find anything. Uh, you're free to go. So we wanted to share Thank that you, story. Yeah. 
Uh, and thank you all for your prayers. Uh, and most of all, thank the Lord for his goodness uh, and for providing bread uh, and good things when we ask for good things. I want to be really careful, though, to say that um, if Corey had been the only one standing up here telling you this story, God would still be good. Amen. Okay. He's not good because the cot wasn't there. He's good because that's just who he is. And so I just want to make sure that Amen. we Amen. say that. Good job. Good. good job. Thank you. Isn't that great? Very, very, very good. Well done, guys. Very good. Tremendous. I could do with a couple of, you know, moderately strong people to get the whiteboard up here if, they, if that's possible. I realized we hadn't got it there. We go, it's two moderately strong. There's three, even better. Great. Take a little drink. All of that excitement dried me out. Phil's going back. He doesn't think he's as strong as the other two. It's probably good. Save yourself for the last song, Phil. So, um, over the last few weeks, we've been looking at Luke's gospel, as you well know. Thank you, guys. You're so kind. We didn't want to put it in front of the Christmas tree because that would have kind of defeated the object. Um, <clears throat> over the last few weeks, we've been looking at uh, the Gospel of Luke. And you'll remember, just a few weeks ago, we looked at the parable of the sower. And in many ways, we've been kind of extrapolating the teaching of Jesus in the parable of the sower into what it is that Jesus then subsequently teaches by his words and his actions. Because what we're, what we're seeing in the gospel lived out by ordinary people, and let's remember, human beings are the same then as they are now. So the reactions of people in the gospel are reactions of ordinary people like you and I. The the way in which people engage with Jesus, the way in which people wrestle with what it is that Jesus is saying are the same ways in which you and I do the same thing. And when we see people struggling, wrestling, being challenged by the things that Jesus says and the things that Jesus does, then of course that, that gives something of a perspective on how it is that you and I wrestle and struggle with these same things. And one of the things that we thought about, of course, is, is that when Jesus gives the parable of the sower, he says that there are different kinds of people, like there are different kinds of soil types. And those, those different kinds of people, like the different kinds of soil types, produce different kinds of things. If the soil type is like a hard path, it'll produce very little. If it's like rocky ground, it will produce something quickly, but it won't sustain over a long period of time. If a person is like a soil into which the word of God is sown, but at the same time, other things are sown from the world, then we'll be like the ground in which the seeds grow up, but they grow up with weeds and thorns that choke them. And if we're like good soil, then we'll receive the word of God, and in Luke it says, 
we will produce a hundred times what has been sown. In other accounts of the same parable in the other gospels, Jesus is recorded as saying, you will produce 30, 60, or 100 times what it is that's been sown. Whichever way, good soil receiving the seed produces a harvest. And so the disciples whose lives are like good soil will produce a multitude of good things from what it is that God has planted there. We will multiply in our life what God has given and what God has done. Now, in some ways, we could finish the service there and kind of go home and say, good. That's probably enough of a challenge for today. Because the reality is that 30, I mean, you know, that's a lot. 30 times what God's given 60, 100. That seems to be a huge return on what it is that God is putting into our life. And yet, Jesus fully anticipates that return on what it is that he gives. So today, we're going to look at the means by which God will work in our life to multiply what he's put in. Today, we're going to look at multiplication. And we're going to look at the way in which Jesus multiplied bread and fish. We're going to look at the parable, or forgive me, the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, the only miracle that you'll find in all four Gospels. The Gospels are amazing because they give us a different perspective on the same life of Jesus. And we get a different window into what it is that Jesus is doing. But of course, the remarkable thing about that is that of course we get the same story, we get the same Gospel, we get the same meaning from the text. But we get a multitude of different miracles and parables and and little vignettes and teachings. But in all of the Gospels, although the writers select from their own experience and testimony the things that have made the greatest impact upon them, all four Gospels record the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. So this is a hugely important and significant event in the ministry of Jesus. And we're going to read it right now. It's in Luke chapter 9. And we're going to begin by reading verse 10. When the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done. Then he took them with him, and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. But the crowds learned about it and followed him. He welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed healing. Late in the afternoon, the twelve came to him and said, send the crowd away so that they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging because we're in a remote place here. 
He replied, you give them something to eat. They answered, we have only five loaves of bread and two fish, unless we go and buy food for all this crowd. About 5,000 men were there. But he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. The disciples did so, and everyone sat down, taking the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke them. Then he gave them to the disciples to set before the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. Now, of course, we could approach this this amazing miracle from many different angles. We could look at it from the perspective that, that this is taking place as Jesus is attempting to withdraw with his disciples to go on retreat. And we could consider some of the truths that are, that are deeply held within the teaching of abiding and withdrawing. We could begin to track how it was that Jesus would regularly withdraw and how it would be that he would take his disciples with him. And perhaps next week when we look at the, at the transfiguration, we'll, we'll look precisely at that. What does it mean to, to withdraw from the busyness of the world? Maybe something that we could be thinking about as we're heading towards Christmas. How do we withdraw from the world so that we can receive from Jesus everything that he wants to give us so that we can be not only recipients of his grace, but, but conduits of his grace. We can be, we can be instruments of his goodness and mercy because we received it and so often the place where we will receive it is in the place of withdrawal and abiding. So we could look at the 5,000 from that perspective but, but that doesn't seem to be the thing that the Holy Spirit has laid upon me this week and perhaps we'll see that next week. Perhaps we could look at it from the point of view of the disciples themselves who have somehow convinced, manipulated this young boy to give up his lunch. Because, you know, we can harmonize all of the texts together because all four of the Gospels have this same story and we can see a fuller picture of this young lad who's there and has brought food along because his mother thought that the provision was important to, uh, to make and they've somehow convinced this lad to, to give up his meal. And we can look at these disciples and, and wonder whether they're really very much like us. And then we can reflect upon them handing out the food. These big fishermen with fishermen's hands with just a small piece of bread and maybe just a fish tail and turning around to look at a vast crowd, a crowd of 5,000 men. The other gospels make it clear, 5,000 men indicating heads of household. And so there's a whole bunch of people there maybe 20,000 people. And they're all sat down in groups of 50, perhaps mirroring the way in which Moses organized the people in the wilderness. And then we can, as we think about those disciples, we can think about what did Jesus mean when he said, and gather up all the pieces at the end. 
Was it that he wanted to make sure that they ate every single last bit of it? Just to make sure that they remembered that God could do these things? Well, we could definitely do that and if we'd have done that, then I would have given you a testimony of what it was that God said to me when, as a young preacher, many, many years ago, I said to him, Lord, you get me to prepare way more than I ever share on a Sunday. What am I supposed to do with it? And the Lord said to me, gather up all of the pieces that nothing is lost. And so from that day until this, I've been gathering backs of envelopes and pieces of paper and scatterings of my, my reflections and thoughts, and I've been gathering them in files. In the old days, they were in red binder files and then eventually computers and hard drives and things like that. And I had no idea why God was asking me to do that, but now, having written, I don't know how many books, 30 all of those books came from all of those scattered, gathered pieces over the years. And I always think it's funny that God wanted to kind of create this big joke that a dyslexic boy from the north of England would write 30 books. It's kind of a bit of a joke, I think. <laughs> but it only ever happened because I was prepared to gather up the pieces after each of the multiplications that God created Sunday by Sunday. But I don't think that that's what God wants to say either. I think that what he wants to help us with this week is the means by which God works in us to produce the place of multiplication. Because in this account from the perspective of Luke, which of course reveals the same story in all of the basic elements as each of the other four accounts. In each of the accounts, Matthew's account, Mark's account, Luke's account, and John's account, Jesus does something that is recorded on each of those occasions, on, in each of those examples, Jesus does something that is clearly articulated in each of those texts. And this is what it is. Jesus. Takes the bread. Jesus. Blesses the bread. The word for bless. Eulogia is a word that is familiar to those of you who have older translations of the Bible. The newer translations of the Bible, they somehow struggle with the word bless and so they, they try to put things like give thanks in there. The word is eulogia, which is to bless by way of a prayer of thanksgiving. Jesus takes the bread, he blesses the bread. He breaks the bread and then he gives it. On every occasion that you read in the New Testament of the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, this is what Jesus does. And here's the interesting thing. On every occasion that Jesus is 
recorded as instituting the Lord's Supper, he does exactly the same thing. He takes the bread. He blesses the bread. He breaks the bread. And then he gives it. There's something in what the liturgical Christians know about what is called the fourfold action that is enormously important, so important that every gospel writer ensured that those that were reading his gospel knew that Jesus made these four actions because these four actions are at the very heart of the multiplication that Jesus does in the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000, and the feeding of his disciples at the Passover supper in the upper room. What is it then that the gospel writers saw so to be so important, to be so significant about these four things that they made sure that they were enshrined in, in holy scripture for people to read and reflect on for many years to come. You see, these four things are the basis of multiplication in everything. If God is going to multiply anything, he's going to multiply it by doing these four things. If he's going to multiply in our lives the work that he has already begun in us so that what he's doing in us, he's going to do in other people. If he's going to give a harvest in our lives from the things that he's put into us so that the things that he puts into us are now gonna be seen in the lives of multitudes of other people, then these four things will be essential to our experience and the experience of others who begin to follow Jesus because these four ways of acting are the ways in which God is acting right now in your life and mine. You see, God wants to take your life. He's made you. If you've bowed the knee and received his presence, if you have recognized all that Jesus has done for you on the cross by way of making a payment for your sins, if you know that the resurrection is yours from the day that you invite Jesus by his spirit to live in, we, in you, then you have been made and saved. And of course you've been saved for a purpose. But the purpose that God has for you is only realizable, is only, is only possible if he takes hold of that which he's made and saved. You see, there's a purpose that God has a unique destiny that you have. And it requires that God takes hold of us. And of course, God is a sovereign God and so he can wrestle us to the ground. 
But the amazing thing is, is that, is that the witness of Scripture is that, is that within the understanding of the sovereignty of God, somehow he still seeks to elicit a response in our lives, which is a response of submission. Do you want God's purposes in your life? Well, the only way is to submit to that purpose and allow him to take hold of you. And why, why would we not do it? Krisha gave us such a perfect testimony. Did she not? Here today we've had this testimony of what it's really like in the, in the very grip of the moment when you're caught in what Jonathan Edwards called the gospel vice. The reality of your experience and the pressing in of God's will. And at some point, each of us has to surrender to that will so that God's purpose is fulfilled. Now, there'll be debates until the Lord returns as to what particular portion the Lord allows us within our free will. But whatever that portion is, we all know the process from our experience of God pressing in on us and asking us to submit. One of the reasons why Christians are not particularly happy is because we're not submitted to his will. Because here's the thing, of course, he doesn't want to take us and ruin our lives. He wants to take us and do what? He wants to bless us. And so the fear that we may have to to surrender to the purposes of God, the, the anxiety that we may feel in relation to submission to his will, of course, is mitigated by the understanding that God is not intending to hurt his children. He only wants to bless them. If you, though you are evil, are able to give good gifts to your children, will not your heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask him? That's what was going through the mind of Corey. And that's what's going through the mind of my heart, if there is such a thing, um, that's going through my heart and imagination when I'm praying for the sick almost on every occasion. Every time I'm praying for somebody for a breakthrough, I'm not praying, oh God, I, I, I suppose you like them. <laughs> a bit. I mean, I know they're not much, but you know. <laughs> I'm saying, Father, this is your child. And they're asking for bread. 
You're not gonna give them a stone. They're, they're asking for a fish. You're not gonna give them a snake. And so my full expectation every time I pray for someone is that God will do good things. Why? Because he's good. His nature is goodness. And although we wrestle and struggle and strive, though we find ourselves constantly kicking against the goads, God's purpose, God's will is a good purpose and a good will. If he's gonna multiply his work in our life, he has to be free to take hold of us. And I wonder whether that's something he's saying to you today. Jesus then, of course, blesses the bread. How does he do that? Well, he gives thanks to the Father. Jesus, we know, stands to make intercession before God the Father day and night. He is our advocate. He is the one who stands on our behalf. He is the one who speaks on our behalf within the, within the courtroom of heaven. And the first thing that Jesus says about you is, Father, thank you for this one. Thank you for this one. This one with all of their baggage and brokenness. Thank you for this one. Isn't that cool? The ancient prayer of the Jews always used to begin, we bless you, king of the universe, for what you've given. God gives gives us a blessing at the request of Jesus. So here is Jesus, he's with the bread, he's with the disciples, he takes the bread, he blesses the bread through a prayer of thanksgiving. And now the bread has been consecrated for purpose. It has been set aside for use. It has been made holy. What would prevent us from being blessed? Being prepared to, of course, receive the blessing is enormously important. But shame is always the opposite of blessing. If you feel shame, then the way to remove shame is blessing. If you don't receive the blessing, then you remain in shame. And so often, we live with these shadows of shame. Things that have been done in the past by us. Things that maybe have been done against us that make us feel ashamed. Things that make us feel dirty or unclean. Things that when we review them in our minds, 
we find ourselves wanting to look away. And yet, God holds us in his gaze and never turns his eye away. However much shame we feel, God is never ashamed of us. He's looking to bless us and remove the shame. When Jesus died on the cross, he died for our sin and our shame. The reason that Jesus died naked on a, on a hill outside of the city was to symbolize that everything that was shameful about human lostness, about human, human nature, all of the shame, he was gonna carry away to the grave. There is no shame that you carry that you have either caused to be there by something that you've done or someone has perpetrated in your life and caused you to make, to make you feel ashamed. There's nothing that you've done or anyone else has done that causes God to look away and choose not to bless you. God wants to take you and bless you. And then he wants to break you. It's an interesting thing, you know, you, you read the stories of the disciples walking with Jesus and they'll get to a great high point. Peter will confess that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. The disciples will see Jesus victorious over the powers of darkness, setting free a young boy from a demon that has, that has beset him for his entire life. And instead of only victorious celebration, alongside the celebration, Jesus often adds this little word. If you're gonna follow me, you'll need to take up your cross and follow me. If you're, if you're going to see these things, then you're going to have to do the things that I've done. And so you'll need to take up your cross as I've taken up mine. What is, what is the purpose of this? Well, simply, the purpose made plain in the scriptures is that our human nature, still fallen, needs to be broken by God so that we do not rely upon our own strength but lean on his You see, here's, here's the default mechanism for every human being, every person that you've ever met, everybody in this room today. The default mechanism is this. Everything's going well, and so you start relying on yourself. 
Yeah, there's one or two people giving me a witness around the room. <laughs> and so you, you, you get to this place where God's taken hold of you and you're getting blessed and you're thinking, this is awesome, I'm an awesome person. Thank you, God, that you've realised how amazing I am. I'm sorry that other people aren't being blessed, but obviously, you know, I'm important, so you blessed me. And so, and so you tend to rely upon yourself. And in relying upon ourselves, we miss the whole story, which is we can't rely on ourselves, we need Jesus. And in the hands of Jesus, when he's taken hold of us, we are blessed. So whatever needs to be broken, we're still blessed. Did you notice that? The blessing comes first. So even if it's broken into 20 pieces, all 20 pieces are blessed. Just turn to your neighbor and say, all the pieces are blessed. Isn't that fun? Isn't that fun? You see, the thing is, the thing is, we will lean on our own understanding. We will rest in our own strength. But God knows that if he's going to multiply his work through us, it has to be his strength. Now, the mentor of the man who wrote this gospel that we're working through right now. The mentor, the Apostle Paul, of course, understood this truth. He said, I asked the Lord on three occasions to remove from me the thorn in my flesh. The thorn in the flesh is probably the people that were besetting him with accusations and insults. The people that were attempting to ruin his work as he was planting churches amongst the Gentiles. He said, I asked the Lord to remove this thorn in my flesh. A thorn in the flesh is, is always a person in the Bible. God says to Joshua, if you don't get rid of the Canaanites, they'll be like thorns in your flesh. And so Paul, the man of the Bible, of course, is referencing that as he's talking to the people and writing to the folks in Corinth. He says, three times I asked him, now, I don't know what it was that he, he said to God about removing the thorn in his flesh. I don't know whether he said, God, would you, would you please could you kill those people? I mean, I, I, I don't know what it was that he said. Did he say, just remove them and bless them? I, I don't know. But, but one way or another, he was asking God to get them out of his life. And then Paul says, and the Lord said, my grace is sufficient for you because my power is made perfect in your weakness. Now what that, what that means is this. God's power is completed, is perfected in our weakness. Weakness and brokenness interchangeable in the New Testament. So here's Jesus. He's working in my life. He's working in your life. And he takes hold of us. And he takes hold of us for a purpose. He takes hold of us for a calling. 
And that calling is gonna be a blessing to many others and, and a blessing to us. And so the first thing that he does when he takes hold of us is he blesses us. And every part of us is blessed. And then he uses the circumstances of our life. He doesn't have to look very far to find them. He uses the circumstances of our life to, to bring us to a place of humility and brokenness, to a place of desperation for him, a recognition that we cannot stand in our own strength. And in that gracious, kindly, merciful work of helping us to realise that he has all of the power that we need and that we have none of it without him, that he has all of the provision, all of the protection, all of the, all of the might needed, and we have none of it. As he works that in us, he makes a place for his power to replace our strength. Our strength, which is insignificant in comparison to his power. And so his power is revealed in the brokenness. It's like, it's like a fault line running through us that we were not aware of. It's like this fault line running through us and God reveals the fault line running through us and it may be a particular tendency, it may be, it may be a, a regular way of thinking, it may be a pattern of behaviour that you find as a, as a kind of a default. It may be a, a family thing, it may, be, it may be a generational thing, it may be something that you've inherited from your parents or from your, your family system or background. This, this fundamental flaw, this fault line, stops being the place where your weakness is revealed and starts being the place where God's power seeps to the surface of your life and begins touching other people. So, I've got a tendency to try to make things happen myself. And so I, you know, I strive in it and I, I overwork and have this kind of tendency to workaholism. And, and I do that because I, without really thinking about it, I arrogantly assume that by my effort, I'm gonna make good things happen. Yeah? I'm sure that I'm completely alone in that <laughs> estimation of myself within the room, yeah? So here's, thank you. Pray for me, brother. So, so you know, as, as the Lord has revealed this and exposed this, I've said to him, well, Lord, it'd be really good if you, if you just removed that kind of tendency, that kind of, addictive pattern in my life. Because of course, everybody I know from my family is an addict. 
And mostly it's manifest in drugs and drink. Thank goodness it's not manifest in that way for me. But it's still an addictive pattern. It's still a, an addictive process. Do you see what I mean? And so here's this, here's this fault line that, that runs through me. And it's as I surrender that fault line to him and say, Lord, I know what I'm going to do left to my own devices. So Lord, I'm going to surrender this into your hands and I'm going to learn how to live a balanced life. I'm going to learn how to live a rhythm between work and rest. I'm, I'm going to learn what it means to bear fruit from abiding. I'm going to learn what it means to withdraw with you in prayer. And I'm going to live it out and not just talk about it. God starts to do things that I could never do in my own strength. Through the fault line, the, the power works through to the surface and begins to touch my life and the lives of others. I don't know what your fault line is. I mean, most of us have got several. And as we encounter them, we often begin to say to God, well, God, help me, um, help me not to have to work with that. Do something else and maybe fix that in heaven or heal it now. And so we, we want God to kind of work through the complete parts of our lives, the, you know, the kind of the presentable parts of our lives, the kinds of things that other people would look at and go, well done. But in general, the way that God multiplies his work in our life is to reveal that the message of the cross is the message of our life, which is that it is in brokenness. It is in death that we find life. The message of our life becomes the message of the gospel, which is cross and resurrection. You can't be resurrected unless you die. I don't know whether you knew that. <laughs> I mean, most of us would prefer to be resuscitated than resurrected. Do you know what I mean? There's a lot of difference between dying and swooning. You know what I mean? You kind of, you get to a certain point in your life and there's all kinds of things that you recognize about your life and you kind of go, oh God, I think I'll swoon. I just wish I was a better person. And God says, yeah. That's not gonna be a wish that you're ever gonna get fulfilled. I'm the better person. We just need to see more of me in you. And the way that we see that is that the brokenness is surrendered. And then what Jesus, of course, does with the bread in the feeding of the 5,000 is to, is to give it. Surrender is gonna be a key thing for all of us. And of course, surrendering to the good news means that all of the guilty things that we don't want to show to the world, all of the fault lines, 
they get to be used by God instead of, instead of necessarily removed. So, here we are. We're right at that point at the end of the sermon where we have to think about what it is that God's been saying to us. And the imperfect nature of the communication might be the thing that you think about as you go away to the missions cafe and have a coffee afterwards and think, he really wasn't on his game today. It's a shame, maybe he didn't sleep very well. I like it when he tells different kinds of stories to those ones. I I wish he'd go back to that other way of preaching. You You could focus all kinds of different places now and for the rest of the day. Or, or you could say, the donkey that spoke to us this morning, like Balaam's donkey, somehow in his frailty and weakness spoke God's word to us. And maybe I need to take cognizance of the fact that Jesus wants to take me, bless me, break me, and use me. And that in doing that, he wants my life to be multiplied into the lives of others. All the good things that he's doing in me through the work of his grace and gospel are the good things that he wants to to start doing in the lives of other people. So, as we finish our time and consider the multiplication of the life of Jesus in us into the lives of others, and as we consider that perhaps even during this Christmas season, as there'll be so many lonely people, so many isolated people, so many struggling people who Jesus can touch through us, As we consider those things, let's ask ourselves, first of all, this question. Where's the sticking point for me in all of this? For some of us, it may be the breaking part. Certainly has been for me over the years. But at times, it can be the blessing part. We just don't feel that we're worthy of being blessed. It could be any part of that fourfold action that Jesus is wanting to do in our lives. And then the second question is this. Wherever it is that I need to focus on today, am I prepared to respond to the call of Jesus today and allow him to take hold of me? if that's the issue, or allow him to bless me, if that's the issue, or allow him to break me so that the things that are already there as fault lines are revealed so that his power can come forth, if that's what it is. Or maybe, or maybe it's just that our lives get to be used by him. And that final little piece of surrender that says, my time, my energy, my money, my relationships are not my own. They're God's and he gets to use them.
wherever it is. My encouragement to you this morning is to hear these words of Jesus. Look at this action of Jesus and be part of the multiplying ministry of the Lord. Today could be a great day for the kingdom if just a few loaves and fish could be taken and blessed and broken and given to the multitudes in Dayton, to the multitudes in Ohio, to the multitudes in our nation and world. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you that you make it so clear what it is that you want to do in our lives. And so today, Lord, we want to surrender, submit. We want to receive this this pattern, this process in our life. Lord, we want to say we're ready for you to take us. We're ready to receive the blessing. We're ready to surrender to the breaking. And we're ready, Lord, for you to give us and use us in the purposes of your kingdom. Lord, may it be that we look back on this day as a special day in our life as disciples. And may it be, Lord, that this day becomes the day when you, Lord, signal a change where we go from addition to multiplication. And the multiplication is because we've learned how to subtract ourselves from the picture and see only you. We pray this, Jesus, for your glory and for your kingdom. All God's people say.